Welcome to the Future is Healthy podcast, where we have in-depth conversations with experts to help navigate wellness and empower all of us to make feasible changes to a healthier life and healthier world. In today's conversation, we spoke with Dr. Eric Garland, PhD, who is a Distinguished Endowed Chair in Research, Distinguished Professor, and Associate Dean for Research in the University of Utah College of Social Work. Director of the Center of Mindfulness and Integrative Health Intervention Development, and Associate Director of Integrative Medicine in Supportive Oncology and Survivorship at the Huntsman Cancer Institute. Dr. Garland is the developer of an innovative mindfulness-based intervention founded on insights derived from cognitive, affective, and neurobiological science called Mindfulness Oriented Recovery Enhancement. As principal investigator or co-investigator, he has received more than $60 million in research grants from a variety of prestigious entities, including the NIH and the Department of Defense, to conduct clinical trials to develop and test novel integrative health interventions, including trials of more as a treatment for addiction and chronic pain. Dr. Garland is arguably the world's leading expert on the use of mind-body therapies to address opioid misuse and addiction, Dr. Garland has had over 180 scientific articles published in respected peer-reviewed outlets. In a recent analysis of research published over the past 55 years, Dr. Garland was found to be the most prolific author of mindfulness research in the world. Today, we chat about what contemplative practice work means and how it is related to mindfulness. Specifically, we talk about how to address the experience of pain and opioid use with mindfulness practice. He gives us actionable advice on how to reduce our own pain and how to experience gratitude and joy more fully in the moment. Dr. Garland walks us through his mindfulness and contemplative practices as well. We learned a lot from this conversation and we hope you do too. Now onto the podcast. Hi, Dr. Garland. Welcome to the Future is Healthy podcast. We're really excited to talk to you today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. Yeah, so you have a really interesting line of work and research that you've been doing. So, but we wanted to start off generally, how did you get involved in contemplative practice work? Good question. Um, Really, my interest in this area uh, came out of my own personal practice of mindfulness, which I've I've been practicing mindfulness and other contemplative practices for, I think, about the past 20, 25 years or so. So it was really it was really a personal spiritual pursuit in the beginning, and then over time I became interested in, in how I can integrate uh, the practice of mindfulness into psychotherapy. And so in my early my early clinical work as a psychotherapist, I was figuring out ways to to pull uh, pull from the threads that I was learning about in contemplative practice and integrate that into working with patients suffering from addiction, emotional distress, and chronic pain. And then later, after after practicing in the field for a number of years and sort of developing my approach to to helping people using mindfulness, I began to systematize it and then to do research on it. And for the past uh, decade or so, that's really been the, the focus of my life's work. Awesome. And I think that we would actually want to go back one step further. And can you define contemplative practice for us, please? Sure. I mean, that's really a a broad set. It's it's a broad term uh, that describes a number of techniques and philosophies. Um, 
So I think let's let, can we just boil it down to mindfulness? How about that? So, so mindfulness is, is, is an English word, but it, it's a word that is attached to uh, both a, a set of practices, mental training practices or forms of meditation, as well as the psychological states of consciousness that are generated from those practices. And, and in general, the state of mindfulness involves being aware of your present moment experience, your thoughts, your feelings, your sensations, your perceptions, um, and watching and observing those experiences without trying to hold on to them or push them away, uh, but rather witnessing them. And, it, and in this witnessing of experience, this observing of experience um, contains a lot of therapeutic power. So, um, so the research is telling us. That's super fascinating. And I know that we've heard mindfulness in the context more of wellness and for people who are probably healthy, but trying to optimize health versus for therapeutic purposes. So I know that you mentioned chronic pain, which is super interesting, but what have you researched, um, mindfulness techniques for? I've, I've actually studied mindfulness for a lot of conditions. In fact, recently I was, I was told that, um, somebody did a, a review of all the mindfulness research in the past 55 years. And I was found to be the most prolific author of mindfulness research in the world. So I can't talk to you about all that stuff right now. Um, but, but it should be a seven hour podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I I don't want to bore people out there, but, uh, the, really the, the focus of my work for the past 10 years has, has been on studying mindfulness as a treatment for the opioid crisis uh, on the intersection between chronic pain and opioid misuse and addiction. Can you give our listeners an idea of what it would be like for somebody who has a chronic opioid use issue and how, you know, mindfulness affected them, obviously without using patient names or anything like that, but just maybe guide us through the journey a little bit. So starting from before they've learned mindfulness. Sure. So, I mean, there, there are many, many paths by which patients find their way to me and my studies. Um, but one, one typical path looks something like this. So uh, some, maybe somebody's had, had pain, maybe they've had back pain and they went to seek help from their physician and maybe they got back surgery and maybe that surgery failed and, and they had to have multiple surgeries, one after the other. And after each surgery, they've been prescribed higher and higher doses of opioids to control the pain. But over time, uh, the patient may develop tolerance to the opioid. The opioid just stops, stops working as well, stops alleviating their pain. And so they have to take higher and higher doses just, just to feel okay. And that, that can spiral out of control in some cases. Um, and then the, then the patient might start taking opioids, not only to alleviate their pain, but also to uh, improve their mood. So when they're feeling stressed or depressed or angry, or they're having trouble sleeping, they might find themselves taking opioids and, and self-medicating negative emotions like that with opioids is a form of opioid misuse that actually in some cases can lead to a full-blown opioid use disorder or opioid addiction. Um, so that's, that's the state in which 
many patients come and find me. We've actually done a lot of work with people in sort of the, the middle zone, the gray zone between taking opioids just as prescribed by their physician and people who are who have a full-blown addiction. So we focused a lot on people who are prescribed opioids, but who are starting to slip into the misuse of opioids to see if we can help them in that, in that place and then prevent them from uh, escalating into full-blown opioid use disorder. So, um, you know, what is, what is the treatment process look like? Is that what you're interested in? Yeah. We would love to chat about that too now. Yeah. So that there's, so the the therapy that I use to address this problem is called mindfulness oriented recovery enhancement or more and more really integrates three great uh, therapeutic traditions It integrates mindfulness training with cognitive behavioral therapy and principles from positive psychology. And so it draws from all of these traditions um, to develop a, a really, I think, a, a powerful approach to addressing chronic pain, emotional distress, and opioid misuse. So it really, it starts with pain because that, that's what brings the patient to us. You know, they're in pain, their pain is not being effectively alleviated by the opioids, and they want help. So we begin by teaching them mindfulness techniques to help them to cope with pain And um, if you'd like, I can describe that to you. Yes, absolutely. That'd be great. Okay. So um, first we teach people simple mindful breathing practices as a way to uh, focus the mind and and calm down the mind and the body. But as the mind becomes more stable and and focus becomes uh, more clear, we then teach the patient actually to become mindful of their pain itself. So to actually focus their attention on on the experience of pain and to deconstruct the experience of pain into into the sensations that make it up. So rather than focusing on some sort of, you know, terrible, awful anguish in their body, we teach patients to zoom in, use mindfulness to zoom into pain and to break it down into sensations of heat or tightness or tingling, as well as to notice the spaces in between those sensations where maybe there's no sensation at all or potentially even a pleasant sensation right next to an unpleasant one. And so teaching people to sort of uh, use this mindful introspection process, actually, it it, it seems, it it may seem uh, wild to you, but actually the better that they're able to actually focus on their pain and sense their pain as uh, sensory sensations of, of heat or tightness or tingling, the greater the pain relief they achieve from this technique. And there, you know, there are a variety of neuroscientific explanations yeah, that I could give you as to why that is, but, but we've, we've, we've shown that in multiple clinical trials now. Wow. That's amazing. And so that seems like you were saying a little bit counterintuitive where you're trying to relieve the pain by focusing on the pain. What, uh, sparked interest in this type of approach? <clears throat> Like who's the first one who is like, yes, I'm going to focus on my pain to get rid of it. I feel like mindfulness is a very like traditional practice. So it may have been a long time ago, but I'm not sure if you know what started that. Well, yes. I mean, I, there, there are ancient Buddhist roots to mindfulness that involve careful in, introspection into, into moments of experience. And uh, traditionally that, that type of practice, that type of insight oriented practice can reveal that any moment of experience actually contains within it uh, a seed of both emptiness as well as bliss 
So, and that, and that means not only, not only pleasant experiences in life, but also neutral experiences and painful ones can, at their heart might be characterized by emptiness and bliss. So this is, this is sort of an, an ancient contemplative, to use that word again, um, insight that comes out of mindfulness practice. Um, but then, you know, bringing this into, into the modern age here, this, I think this also clearly relates to the way that, brain, that, that pain is processed in the brain. You know, when we experience pain, we're not experiencing the pain in our bodies. We're experiencing the, the pain through our brains. So the brain, the brain translates the signals from the body and decodes those signals into the experience of pain. And when people begin to develop chronic pain, they're actually their beliefs and their expectations about how the body should feel and how the body is going to feel start to actually influence the perception of pain. And this is called a, this is related to what's known as the predictive coding model of pain in the brain. So when a person has been in pain for a long time, they may actually uh, not be actually sensing their bodies as, as much as potentially sensing their expectations and even memories about the body. And do it's, you know, hypothetically, what we're doing here is we're actually helping people to get in touch with the actual moment by moment changes that are occurring in the body and not just their emotional reactions and expectations about how their body, they think their body is going to feel. That's so fascinating. And I feel like it's really an optimistic viewpoint too about chronic pain because so many people are experiencing it. And if we can like deconstruct it and be like, that might actually not be what you're experiencing, but what you expect to experience. And so many people can be relieved from their suffering. Well, that's right. And, 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 you know, I, I actually can personally relate to this. I, I uh, have had a pretty severely herniated disc in my back and what, and which caused me a ton of pain. And when you've been in pain for a while, you just sort of, you're constantly sort of scanning your body on the lookout for pain. You know, you're sort of asking, you wake up in the morning, am I in pain? Is my pain going to be bad today? And uh, that kind of hyper attention to, to the sensations in your body uh, can, in some cases, it can actually make pain hurt worse. So in some ways, we're, we're just sort of, un, we're using mindfulness to, to peel away that, the, the added emotional anguish that people put on top of their pain. And, and, and doing that actually can decrease the intensity of pain itself. Interesting. So, oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was just, that, that was just sort of the first part of more, but in terms of targeting the pain, but then there's also how, how do we approach dealing with uh, the opioid use issue itself? Yeah. Let's dive into Let's, it. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So, so, <clears throat> um, we also, at the same time, we, we start asking people to become more conscious of their opioid use patterns. And so we, um, we ask them to practice mindfulness for a few minutes every day before they take their opioid. And we, we don't tell them to not take the opioid, that we leave that up to them. That's, that's their choice. And that's you know, something they need to decide with their, with their doctor if they're prescribed an opioid. But we do ask them to stop for three minutes and to practice mindfulness while they're holding their pill bottle or their pill and to become aware of how their mind and body are, are reacting in, in, in this moment that they feel the need to take the pill. And patients discover all sorts of interesting things during that process. 
For example, sometimes they discover that um, practicing a few minutes of mindfulness actually starts to alleviate their pain. And maybe they don't need to take the pill or take as many pills. Maybe they can actually push the dose off, you know, skip a dose until the next dose. Sometimes people also discover that maybe they're taking the opioid for reasons other than pain. Maybe they're taking the opioid uh, because they're upset, because they're stressed, or maybe they're taking it out of habit. They're just taking it because they always take it at this time. And sometimes they discover they're taking the opioid because they have a really strong desire for the opioid, a, a wanting or an urge to take the opioid. So that, <clears throat> that, that process is really important, helps people sort of become more aware of, of what they're doing and, and their automatic habits around opioid use. And then later, as, as the treatment uh, weeks go on in the therapy, we teach people how to use mindfulness to actually deal with craving for opioids in much the same way as I described to you the, the technique that, that we use to help patients deal with pain. We teach them to zoom into the craving and to break it down into thoughts, emotions, and sensations, and to watch those sensations come and go and, and, to, um, and to recognize that, they, that by just watching them, they can actually let them go and they don't have to necessarily give in to the craving. So that's, that's another important part of more and then there's one last piece I'd like to tell you about, and then I'll 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 shut up and let you ask me. <laughs> I'll let you no, ask keep going. This is very interesting. Question. So so the the other component to to mindfulness oriented recovery enhancement that makes it really unique is its focus on mindful savoring. So we teach people we teach people how to use mindfulness to really focus on and take in the good in their lives to really. Uh, use mindful awareness to savor natural, healthy pleasure in everyday life. And, and this practice is really important, actually, because what we know from, from the, the neuroscience of addiction is that as a person becomes more and more addicted, they become more and more dependent on the drug just to feel okay. And this, this creates changes in the brain such that the brain becomes over time more sensitive to stress and pain and drug-related cues, and it becomes less sensitive to natural pleasure. So people stop getting the same sort of contentment or joy or sense of meaning in everyday life, and then they feel like crap, and that pushes them to take higher and higher doses of the drug just to feel okay. And this, this, um, this process is caused by changes in the brain's reward system in, in regions of the brain, including the orbital frontal cortex and the ventral striatum. So parts of the brain that are encoding uh, re reward through dopamine and endogenous opioid signaling. And so, so this is, this is uh, if this is the problem that, that seems to be driving the downward spiral, leading people from chronic pain, to opioid misuse and addiction, then we need a therapy that can actually target that problem and can, can help to heal it. And so that's why in mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement, we teach people how to savor natural healthy pleasure through mindfulness. So focusing their, their mindfulness on, on the everyday sort of pleasures that occur in life, you know, whether it's 
uh, a beautiful sunset or whether it's a bird singing in, a tr in, in the tree or um, flowers growing up from the cracks in the sidewalk or listening to music um, and some, you know, played through somebody's window. Teaching people how to really focus on those experiences as, as a way to deeply appreciate them and, and extract a deeper sense of joy and contentment and meaning from those experiences. And what we found through, through a, quite a bit of psychophysiological research uh, using measures like EEG, heart rate variability, fMRI, is that when after patients go through eight weeks of mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement, practicing this mindful savoring technique, their brains and bodies become more sensitive to natural pleasure. And the more sensitive their brains and bodies become to natural pleasure, the less they, the less they crave opioids and the less they misuse them. Wow. That's beautiful. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. I was about to ask how long does it take for people to start to experience the natural rewards, but you said most of the studies have been about eight weeks. That's right. So, um, in, in, this eight-week treatment, after this eight-week treatment, we've been able to show these changes in the brain and the body, showing that people are actually becoming more sensitive to natural, healthy pleasure. Wow. Which is really, really amazing. That is. And because I think that's such an important practice, not only for people who um, are falling into a dependency on opioids for their chronic pain, but I think everyone needs to have a little bit of that in their life where they're really paying attention to all these little experiences and truly gaining pleasure. I mean, we're just so bombarded with information and social media and people are so bored easily nowadays, but like the life around us is amazing and we have to be able to find joy in that again. It's totally true. I mean, in some ways, modern society is just has created this addiction within us all to, to you know, experience the next greatest thing. Um, some, you know, we need more and more intense stimulation just to feel excited, just to feel engaged, to feel good. We need more and more likes, you know, a thousand likes isn't enough. You know, I need, I need a thousand and one or a million followers isn't enough. I need 1.7 million. <laughs> uh, because that's just that that's just how the brain works right that's how that's how the the reward system of the brain works and so we all could i think could benefit as you said from from this practice of savoring to appreciate that that actually the simple pleasures that are around us all the time every day that we normally overlook actually can 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 contain a great wellspring of joy and peace and meaning. That's amazing. Can, can you tell our listeners, uh, maybe what your routine is like, like your routine for just total mental wellness and mindfulness and, uh, savoring the experiences around you, what's your day look like? Uh, well, really my, my routine for mental wellness centers around the practice of mindfulness, which I, which I've been doing, um, ever since I was 18 years old. So nowadays, you know, I, I tend to practice mindfulness in the evening because my life's pretty busy. I've got kids. Um, and so, you know, my house is kind of 
crazy and noisy. And so the one, the one time of the day that I know that I can find a quiet space is in, in the hour before bedtime. Um, and so then I go and I, and I, and I practice mindfulness meditation, which my practice has sort of evolved over, over the years from being focusing my attention on, on my breath and as, as, as the object of mindfulness. And now it's, it's really deep into the place where I'm not so focused on the breath, but rather I'm just reflecting on, on the field of my awareness, which, which is really a, which can provide just a, a sense of spaciousness and presence. And sometimes even an experience of bliss um, and, and really what I, what I'm, what I'm noting in those moments is that this, this sense of being connected to something greater than myself. So sort of a, focusing on, on the sense of, of, of uh, my sense of interconnectedness or, or oneness with the world around me. So that's, that's, that's my practice in terms of my savoring practice what that looks like is um, when I have the opportunity, which I, I guess based on what I told you, the opportunity should be there always. So maybe I should rephrase that. When, when I take the opportunity to savor, um, like for example, looking out, out my window at the, at the breeze blowing through the leaves in the tree right now and the sunlight streaming through the, through the leaves, I, I really can appreciate the the beautiful colors of the leaves, their shape, the motion that, that gives me a sense of, of the life force of this tree. And perhaps, you know, if I were outside, I'd be appreciating the warmth of the sun on my skin um, or maybe feeling the breeze. And then what's really important about the practice of savoring that I didn't didn't fully explain is that at some point you become aware of positive emotions arising in your mind or your body or, or pleasant sensations in the body. And when those come up, savoring involves a process of turning your attention inward and then really appreciating and basking in those positive feelings and relishing them and, and it's almost as if you could sort of breathe them into the center of your being, just kind of breathe them inside of you and allow them to, to fill you up naturally. So that's what that practice, that's what that practice can be like. And when it gets, you know, when it gets really good, then you get this sense of that, that you and the thing that you're savoring start to become more deeply connected. And, and my last comment on that is, you know, it, this relates to, your comment about the world that we live in with, <clears throat> with all of its pressures and all of its, um, you know, all the stimuli coming from every direction. I think there's a lot, I think there's a, a pervading sense of emptiness in a lot of people out there. There's just a hole inside of them. And we're always trying to do something bigger and better to fill that hole, that emptiness. But this type of, this type of practice this type of contemplative practice, if you will, the savoring practice is really a way to, to regain a sense of, of connection with the world around you. 
beautiful. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Thanks for sharing those. Um, you know, I love how the science is really catching up to things that, you know, maybe our grandparents told us, like just go outside and sit in the sun or, you know, savor that last bite of steak. <laughs> or, you know, if you had some problems, they're just like, just sit there and think about it. And it's like the science is catching up to all these things that we've been doing for a long, a long time. Totally true. My, uh, my grandma was one of the wisest people I ever met and she was, she was great at, at savoring. She did it. She did it naturally. And so did, so did my mom. I think that's really my mom. My mom was the one who sort of uh, inspired me to, to include the savoring practice in this work. But from a scientific perspective, it's really, it's really pretty fascinating um, and, and, and quite amazing that this, you know, we, 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 we conceptualize addiction as a brain disease and, and a chronic brain disease that involves a lot of changes to executive function, to the emotional centers of the brain, and then, of course, to the reward system, like I described to you. Um, so what's amazing is that our brains are actually plastic, that there is neuroplasticity, and that through mental training, through, through engaging in these practices, we can actually change the function and the structure of the brain and, and potentially even heal, uh, heal the, 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 the damage that's been done to the brain from addiction. And that's really where all, where all the science is pointing now. Yeah, that's really exciting because I know that a few years back, we just thought that your brain stops growing and evolving at like 25 or something like that. But our brain is constantly changing. Um, and so actually that leads to one of the questions that we had for you is what does a healthy brain process look like versus those who are experiencing addiction or chronic pain? And I think that you touched on it a bit, but if we, if we could focus on that, that'd be great. Sure. So, um, well, people who are, who are suffering, there actually are some overlapping brain mechanisms between chronic pain and addiction. Um, one of those is, is that the prefrontal cortex um, loses, becomes less able to regulate the emotional reactions and habitual behaviors that are, that are being driven by activation in uh, the limbic system and the striatum. So the, the, so the part of the brain that's kind of behind our, right behind our forehead, front of the front of our brain, uh, becomes in those conditions, sometimes it becomes actually weaker and unable to control these automatic impulses that are, that are propelled by um, hyperactivity and brain structures like the amygdala or, um, or the striatum, as I mentioned before. And so that, that means that the person has less, less control, less self-control over unhealthy behaviors. So, and at the same time, certainly in the case of addiction, we see this hyperactivity of the brain's reward system in response to drug-related cues. Like, you know, in the case of somebody who's, who's misusing opioids, maybe it's the site of their, their Oxycontin pill bottle. But if you're, you know, if you're an alcoholic, then it's walking past the bar on the street. 
when we when we see those those cues that are associated with past drug use episodes, the brain's reward system just lights up. It lights up like a Christmas tree, and that that activation, which involves the release of dopamine, captures the person's attention. It makes it hard for them to to not think about getting high, to not think about taking the drug, and that drives a powerful craving. So. So really there's this dual process going on in which, in which the, the person's reactivity to drug-related cues and to stressors in life becomes really amplified, exaggerated. And then at the same time, the, the brain process that's involved in regulating that reactivity becomes weaker. So the prefrontal cortex becomes less able to, to dampen down that activity. And so the person loses control over drug use. So that's, that's, I think, was that, does that help? Oh yeah, that was, that was very well explained. Thank you. I actually didn't tell you sort of the outcomes of this therapy. Maybe I can do that and you can. Yeah, absolutely. What are the outcomes of the therapy that you use? (laughs) That's, that's kind of important, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so we've been studying mindfulness oriented recovery enhancement for the past 10 years. Uh, and we've conducted multiple randomized clinical trials of this therapy. And, and what we found is that going through eight weeks of mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement significantly decreases chronic pain intensity. So people are hurting less after they get the eight weeks of treatment. They're, better, they're able to function better in their lives. So they're, they're, able to, they're, they're able to cope with pain better and live better lives. And we find that more significantly decreases both opioid craving and opioid misuse. And in fact, I I just finished the largest study of mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement ever conducted. So this was a five-year trial funded by NIH. And in this trial, there were 250 people with chronic pain who were misusing opioids um, who were enrolled into the trial. And in this study, we actually provided the, the mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement therapy in, in primary care. So in the doctor's offices where patients were receiving their pain management. And the therapy was delivered by clinical social workers. And we found that relative to uh, supportive psychotherapy as usual, that was, that was our control condition. So compared to sort of standard psychotherapy, mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement was uh, reduced opioid misuse uh, about twice as powerfully. So mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement reduced opioid misuse by 46% nine months after the end of the treatment compared to a 22% reduction in people who were treated with supportive psychotherapy. So it was just a massive effect at reducing opioid misuse. And uh, a third of the people who were treated with with mindfulness oriented and recovery enhancement, were able to cut their opioid dose in half or more. And these effects also lasted nine months after the end of the treatment. And people were reporting less pain nine months later, less depression, and they were happier. They felt a greater sense of meaning in life. So this is a, this is a highly, highly effective therapy that if you, if you can practice these skills <clears throat> with a therapist for eight weeks, and find these powerful effects nine months later. It really shows that 
that going through this treatment uh, changed people's lives for the better. That's amazing. Wow. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. I mean, thank you for this work you're doing. It's amazing. Thank you. My pleasure. And so my, my real, my real focus now is trying to disseminate this therapy. So I'm really focused on training, training clinicians to deliver this therapy to their patients. So I've trained, I've trained over 400 social workers, psychologists, nurses, and physicians to date. And I'm really dedicated now to getting this out um, to, to, to training, to training clinicians so they can help their patients all throughout the healthcare system. So lastly, we ask every guest to finish the following sentence. The future is blank. <laughs> and now I'm, I'm going to have to suspend my own personal, re- <laughs> my own personal reaction right now, because, you know, it's been a tough time, I think, for everybody in society. So I want to give you, I want to give you a hopeful vision of the future. No, give, give, us your, give us your natural one, and then we can always edit it out for the, for the optimistic one afterwards. <laughs> no, okay. I'll, I'll, no, I'll give you the honest, the honest one. Okay. The future is full of possibility. It's full of possibility. And I have a lot of hope that as individuals, we can, we can rise above the suffering in our lives and learn how to flourish in the face of adversity, to, to live a meaningful life. That's beautiful. Thank that. you. Well, thank you, Dr. Garland. This was an amazing conversation. Um, Very enlightening. Uh, We really appreciate all the work that you're doing. It's, I mean, it's very optimistic to see that there's something that can be used for chronic pain and not only chronic pain and opioid addiction, but also what we could benefit from every single day of our lives. Um, I really like the practice that you walked us through. So we really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Future is Healthy podcast. If you loved what you heard, subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts. And if you think someone you know can benefit from any of the info we talked about, share this with friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. We don't rely on paid ads so that you can trust we have no conflict of interest in any of the information we provide or talk about in this podcast. If you support what we're doing, you can help us to continue putting out content by clicking the link to support the Future is Healthy podcast. This podcast is for general education purposes only. It is not a substitute for treatment, diagnoses, or professional medical advice. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or other qualified professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information from this podcast and any of the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. If you are seeking advice for any medical condition, it is important to seek the assistance from a qualified, trained, and licensed medical practitioner.